Guys, good Wednesday afternoon. I'm Jerry Miller. Thank you kindly for joining us on the I Love Seville show. We are in downtown Charlottesville. We broadcast on all social platforms. We're about a mile from the University of Virginia, a few feet from the Charlottesville Police Department, right around the corner from the downtown mall, a couple of steps away from the Charlottesville and Almore County courthouses. And folks, we are roughly 15 minutes, maybe 20, from the Monticello Wine Trail. And the Monticello Wine Trail has a distinction that I'm very proud to broadcast on this program, the top region in the world, according to Wine Enthusiast Magazine. There's no one better, perhaps, that can champion the Monticello Wine Trail, and there's a lot of champions out there of this trail, than Stephen Bernard. This guy knows wine like the Pope knows holy water. Judah Wickhauer, if we can go to the studio camera, and then the two-shot, and welcome the dapper, the <laughs> distinguished, the talented... The man of many talents, Stephen Bernard, to the show. Good afternoon, my friend. Good afternoon, the gentleman who needs a haircut. Jerry, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. I yeah. mean, before we get into a global award, yeah. I mean, this is big time here. Before we get into that, how about a little uh, localization, humanization, and personalization for you, Stephen Bernard? Introduce yourself to the viewers and listeners. Sure. Uh, Stephen Bernard, uh, originally from South Africa, made my way haphazardly into Charlottesville, Virginia 20 years ago. And as the joke goes, I was looking for a green card. So I met this wonderful, wonderful woman, um, wife, Kathy, and we're raising our, our kids in Charlottesville, making wine, and we're just simple farmers enjoying the beauty of Virginia and all of God's graces in this part of the world. Uh, parenthood. How's that going? My wife and I have two boys. Ooh. What are you guys rocking over There's, there? Uh, I've got uh, a girl looking up from heaven and uh, another girl and two boys. There's no manual that comes with parenting, right? So you do the best, you, you realize you can do better, but they bring out the best of you. So the Rugrats are doing great. So Aria, Alakai, and Mav, and then Amaya up there, they're, they're amazing. But thank God for the wife, because Kath, Kath kind of holds it all together and allows me to do what I do. I uh, echo that to my beautiful wife who's watching the program. Um, parenthood, the best, hardest thing ever, the longest, shortest thing ever. How do you characterize it? Uh, it the best, yeah. the best. Even the worst of days are the best of days, right? So you wouldn't you wouldn't change a thing. You you wouldn't give it up for anything in the world. So being being a dad and a and a father and a husband, it's uh, it's I think what we're meant to meant to be, right? It's, uh, it's one of God's greatest gifts. You're getting props right now from Chris Zitzman, Christina Sandridge giving you some love, Paul mm. Ting giving you some love. Viewers and listeners, you can ask Stephen questions, and I will relay them live on air. Let's get to the nitty gritty. The top region in the world. Oh my gosh, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, if you think about how our industry has shaped over the last couple of years, we only started in 1976 when the uh, Zonines took a punt and, and bought Barbersville Vineyards. Um, and then when you're going up against wine regions of the world, Lambrusca in Italy, Provence in France, Swatland, South Africa, Victoria, Australia, and to come out and, and get wine enthusiasts nominated wine region of the year for 2023, not only is that an incredible honor, you also have to pay homage to, to the folks that have done it prior to you, many, many years of groundwork and blood, sweat, and tears. But what an incredible honor for the industry, for the men, the women, the growers, the, the makers, the, the marketers, the owners that are shaping and have shaped where we are today. It's absolutely amazing. Um, you're getting, uh, I see 11 states on the feed, a couple of countries watching you right now. Pam Culberson says hello. Renee Everhart says hello. Viewers and listeners, ask him some questions. I see about a dozen already, which we will get to in a matter of moments. Um, is this a surprise? Like, we know, we mm. live here, sure. so we understand 
let, let's cut to the chase. We live here because we have an abundance of riches. Sure. It's live music, like I said, the restaurants, the yeah. breweries, the wineries, the outdoors, mm -hmm. ACC sports. I mean, I know you're a sports fan. Oh, yeah. You know, so much that we can do on any given day, sure. one of the foundations of why we live here. We know the wine is damn good. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of options. There's a lot of competition in wine, which is raising the game for everyone. Sure. Because there's limited dollars to go around, so everyone's got to be on their A-plus game all the time. Sure. Are we surprised outside of the region that Monticello Wine Trail is the top in the world? You know, you, know you, you always have to show a, a little bit of humility, right? So I've, I've known and championed the, the quality of the wines. I, I know my colleagues. I know their training. I know their backgrounds. I know where they've worked. So I am not surprised at how good these wines are. I think the surprising part is how far-reaching the Virginia industry is now going. You know, the Wine Enthusiast is a major publication. You know, we're getting awards in Decanter and Wine Spectator. We've had Oz Clark and Ray Isle and James Suckling, all these, these heavyweights of, of wine of the wine industry come out here and go, hang on a moment, you know, Virginia is an area you want to you wanna focus on. Great quality wine, just a hop, skip, and a jump from D.C. Right. Forget the, the amenities, the music, the food, you know, the culture, the mountains, the nature, and all the historical artifacts as well. I mean, this is an incredible area. But, yeah, are we surprised? I would say we, we are. But internally, probably not as much because uh, I think now the world's recognizing what we've thought to believe is that Virginia makes world-class incredible wines. Uh, Ginny Hu, thanks for retweeting us on Twitter. Logan Wells Claylo, hello. Mr. DL, thank you for joining us on Twitter. You're getting props right now from uh, Camila Eubanks, Washington. She says, my friend, Stephen Bernard, cheers. And she's got the cheers. wine emojis on oh, the feed it. right now. Um, let's, let's talk about the flipbook or the evolution, the history of, of the region and the trail. Give props to the early adapters, those first to market. And if you could give us kind of like the first, second, third chapter and so on of how it's matured. Sure. So I think you, you have to start off with, with Gabrielli Rossi, uh, the Zonines, um, and, and Barbersville, right? And they planted vineyards, what, 1976, and sort of started off the industry. And then you've had some major heavyweights. You look at folks like Dennis Horton, who, who was a big advocate of Viognier. And if it weren't for him, you would argue and say, maybe Viognier wouldn't be doing as well or planted as extensively as it was in Virginia. You look at the Lucy Mortons, the Chris Hills, the Tony Champs, um, you know, Felicia Rogans, who, who really, you know, based on nothing but passion and intuition and, and just a love of land and creating a product that is unique, thought, let's take a chance and, and let's, let's just go for it, right? That entrepreneurial spirit, which maybe could even be tied back to Thomas Jefferson himself, you know, thinking that this, this uh, part of the world could grow vinifera and not grow it, but grow it well and make a, a product that would, would long serve the, um, the economic advantages, the, the work advantages, and, and really look after the land. And then, you know, once it was shown that it could be done, then, you know, the talent that came in, yeah, UC Davis trained winemakers, French winemakers, Italian winemakers, South African winemakers coming in because they see an opportunity to not be restricted by history, to be, you know, authentic, transparent, collaborative, and, and really take the wine world by storm, you know, shake up the status quo of what we think wine is in an area that, that probably is not well known as a wine-producing state, but it is now, and it's starting to. So... The other thing that's really important is this is just the beginning. 
right? This award doesn't mean we've made it. This award means we have to work even harder. Now we have the opportunity to take that spotlight, make sure we, we kind of give credence to the fact that, yes, we, we deserve this award, and now we need to do better. And that's the, that's the great opportunity that we have, is now that we have the spotlight, we have the opportunity to make even better wines. There, there's the follow-up question. How do you do that? Ha. I think, you know, the great thing about Virginia, which I really like, is, is how transparent and authentic and collaborative this industry is. If you take something like the Winemakers Research Exchange, you know, Joy Ting started by Emily Pelton or Emily Hudson um, at Veritas, you know, with the intention of let's, let's do experiments, let's each winery go out and, and experiment with varietals, method productions, what works, and then let's kind of make that information available. Let's get these tastings together. Let's get winemakers and growers and marketers in a room. Let's figure out what works well, what works best, and how do we propel the industry together. The old notion of raising tides, raise all ships, that is something that is so true. Yeah, I know I can pick up a, a a phone and call a multitude of people and say, what works, what doesn't? And there's none of that, you know, I'm not going to share with you because, hey, I want you to do well. If you do well, I do well. And if I do well, the restaurant does well. And the restaurants do well, the hotels do well. And that whole collaborative of, you know, collectively we're stronger than individually, I think that's that's something that is is thriving and as well as going to do us in great stead moving forward. Um, rising tide is good for all ships, yeah. um, which is what you're describing here. If you could highlight the wine trail and the region and this um, thought process of rising tide is good for all ships and what it can do for further economic stimulus to central Virginia in sure. totality. Um, about a 300,000 person market, central Virginia, when we include the outer counties, Charlottesville and Albemarle County. Um, drive or put in perspective the, the economic stimulus that wine is having to central Virginia and what are the next steps to further reinforce this um, effort or momentum? Sure. So if you think of the, the two biggest revenue-generating sectors in Virginia, agriculture and tourism. So agritourism goes together, right? So if you think of you're coming in, say even from northern Virginia, you're coming in from Washington, D.C., you have to stay somewhere. So you're going to go to a hotel. You're going to go and eat somewhere. You're going to have breakfast somewhere. You're going to take in the local sites, maybe go downtown mall. You go down... Um, you know, the downtown and you have something to eat, you, you visit the wineries, and not only do you visit one, you visit multiple, right? So, you know, that, that's where, you know, dollars are spent in multiple sectors, right? And that's what we want. We want folks, you know, think about, like, if you go to Jefferson Vineyards, right? You can go to Marigold's and stay at Keswick Hall. You can go to dinner there. You can go to Jefferson Vineyards. You can go to Blenheim, Trump, Kluge, um, or the old Kluge, rather, Gabrielli, and then you go up to Monticello and you take in, you know, the historical sites. I mean, that in just one day is value and customers' dollars going into multiple sectors. And the other thing is, not only do we make incredible wine, we have incredible breweries, we have incredible cideries, we have distilled products as well. So there are so many options as a consumer to, to partake in. And the great thing is our neighbors are going to tell you where to go. If you're looking for something to, to do, they're going to show you and point you in the right direction. So this is where it benefits both of us and all of us, right? So if someone goes to this winery, you know, they're going to point you in another direction as well. And that's how we can, we can all benefit. Uh, Johnny Ornalis of El Mariachi um, and Guadalajara and soon to open Mexicali on West Main Street watching the program giving you props. Pam Culberson giving you some props right now. Questions are coming in fast and furious. Oh, yeah. And viewers and listeners, literally we have 
multiple countries watching Stephen Bernard on the program right now. Viewers and listeners, if you want to ask him a question, put it in the social media feed you're watching the show upon, and I will ask Stephen the question live on air. This comes from Juan Sarmiento. He okay. says, please ask Stephen, and Judo will get you to smile here for a picture that we're, at, we're, we're doing during the show. He says, please ask Stephen how recent climate, ch- climate changes have or are going to have an impact on current or future crops? That's a, that's a fantastic question. I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that climate change is real and that areas that are cold are getting warmer and warmer areas are getting hotter. So that, could, that can mean two things, both positive and negative. If you take cold areas, let's take Champagne, for instance, the average growing temperature in Champagne is about 50 degrees, and over the last couple of years, it's gone up to 52. And the way that impacts that is that you know, you've got more quality, consistent products. You know, um, year in, year out, vintage variation is, is minimized. Um, and areas, you know, in parts of England, which are making some of the best wines, if you go into Hampshire and uh, Kent and Sussex down in the south, they're planting vinifera where years gone by after the Second World War, they were planting German varietals and hybrids because those are the only grapes that could do well in cold areas. Now they're planting Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Meunier and making some of the best sparkling wines in the world. So climate change in cooler marginal areas are fantastic in terms of it will allow those producers to plant better grapes more consistently, the haphazard side of it. If you think of places like Australia, South Africa, California, which is really, really, really hot, where water is a scarce commodity, take South Africa, where a couple of years ago Cape Town almost ran out of water, that's where it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But there's research done on vines that could be planted that don't require as much water, so there's ongoing research. So it has a positive and a negative effect, you know, depending on the area that it is. But it is real. It's something people take very, very seriously. And steps are being taken to to mitigate the the negative effects that it might have on our industry. Uh, Stephanie Wells-Rhodes watching the program in Keswick. John Blair watching the program in Stanton. We'll go to Greenwood, Virginia with Kevin Higgins, Mm -hmm. who's got a question for you. Stephen Bernard, what do you look for in dirt? I think we have the best winemakers and wineries anywhere, but I've always wondered about the growth environment and why it works so well here. Sure. You know, when, when it comes to dirt, you're almost looking for, for poor soils, right? You're looking for terroir that makes the vine, vine struggle a little bit. You know, one of our biggest terroir characteristics is rainfall. If you think we get about 42 inches per annum, which is more than enough rainfall to, to kind of sustain the growth of the vineyard over the course of the year. So when you're looking for soil, you're looking for, for slopes, you're looking for well-drained. Um, what I mean is clay holds a lot more water. It's a cooler, cooler soil, so it'll kind of delay bud break, which is great, but it'll ripen grapes a little bit more slowly. Um, but what I'm more looking for is, is soil and topography and climates and you know, things that can make wines with character wines that, that appeal to you, you know, emotively or intellectually as well. So um, soil has to be, obviously, has to have all the, the things that you need, the nitrogen, the potassium, the phosphor, and all of that. But it really wants to, to kind of, you want to be on the marginal edge of, of growth because I think the best grapes still make the best wines. The winemakers, we're not winemakers, <coughs> we're just conduits, right? We're almost conservators of wine. You know, it does start with good fruit. So planting the grapes on the right soil, the right slope orientation, the right clones, the right rootstocks, that 
that is invaluable. And I think that's where maybe, you know, we owe a lot to the folks of 20, 30, 40 years ago who've made those mistakes, who've, who've done everything. Now we have better information to make better decisions, which would lead us to, to better wines. Uh, Nicholas Erpe, the CMO of Emergent Financial Services on the feed and one of the co-stars of Today Imanana, which airs Thursdays at 10, 15 a.m. right here on the I Love Seville Network, giving you props. Roger Voisinet, one of the fantastic realtors in town, giving you some love. Bill McChesney, giving you some love. 11 states watching Stephen Bernard on the program right now. Questions are coming in very quickly. I will try to keep up. We're going to spend about 45 minutes here with this virtuoso. Stephen, this is a great question about labor. Okay. Uh, has labor improved? We've read um, in various media outlets that winemakers and wineries and vineyards also goes for much of the alcohol scene are having a difficult time with labor, in particular with work outside. Has that improved at all in this region? And that's from Cheryl, who's watching in Richmond. Thank you, Cheryl. That, that's a great question. Um, labor is an issue. Um, and it's not just labor. It's, it's skilled labor. Um, and we are reliant on a skilled labor force that serves the greater part of the industry. The Monticello Wine Trail is about 40 wineries, spread, you think, about 25 miles outside of Charlottesville. Um, and, and there are some really talented individuals to which we owe a lot, but they're not that many that can pick all the grapes at the same time, can do all that's needed. So the, the other part of the conversation is mechanization. Um, you know, and, and if you think of mechanization, you, you can do it with less people. It's quicker. It's more efficient. But the investment costs are a lot higher as well. Especially up front. Say again? Especially up front. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you look at a, a grape harvester, three hundred dollars to $500,000, you know, at what point do you justify the, the kind of buying of that? But you've got de-leafers and hedges and automatic pruners and all of that. So mechanization is something I think the, the industry is going to move towards. Um, but I think there is still a, a valuable part that skilled laborers play in the, in the industry as well. And so it's our job to make sure that we train people. That's the other thing about this is maybe this award actually gets people to enter into the, the enology or the viticultural sector, learn about it, want to work in the vineyards. You know, maybe we can inspire people to do that versus you know, take the accounting route or whatever that is. Um, but yeah, labor is, is a tough thing. And when all 40 wineries are clamoring, trying to get their grapes off to beat the rain that's coming tomorrow, that's always tough. So therefore, you know, you're going to have that labor shortage, you have incredible labor, but you're also going to have that mechanization kind of conversation that's going to come into it as well. Uh, Chef Curtis Shaver watching the program right now. We love you, Curtis. Holly Foster watching in Henrico right now. Holly, you're the best. Betsy Nugent watching the program. Brian Yeago, hello. Thank you kindly for joining us. KTP, Katie Pearl, hello. 13 states on the program right now watching Stephen Bernard. Bob Yarborough and Redfields, hello. Beth Mark, Hello. We'll give props right now to Rodney Adams, Lisa Rossi, um, Claudia Bolito. I hope I'm getting her name right. Um, thank you kindly uh, for watching the program. This is a great question right here. This one comes from California. You said there's 40 wineries in the region? Mm -hmm. With 40 wineries in the region, um, from, this is Stephanie commenting from Cali, with 40 wineries in the region, can he put in, per, uh, in per, uh, perspective the per capita competition versus potentially other regions, 40 wineries in a region that's not quite that large seems like a lot of competition to us. You're 100% you're correct, and thank you. If you take California, which is the dominant growing area in America, I think, and, and don't quote me on this, but I think our vineyard acreage is 0.3% that of California. 
Um, and you think of all the, the routes to market that we, we struggle with. Number one, um, the high cost of establishing a vineyard, the high cost of maintaining a vineyard. Um, you know, the, the routes to market in terms of distribution. Our challenge is not only bumping into that distribution wholesale market, but it's competing with an influx of California, Oregon, New York, uh, Washington states, you know, and then the international wineries, the Yellow Tails, the Calif um, you know, South Africa, and the Argentinian wines that can place a good bottle of wine that is always there, doesn't run out, is fairly inexpensive. How do we compete with a wine that is, is made like 300 cases as opposed to hundreds of thousands of cases, that is $30 as opposed to $15 a bottle as well? And those are the questions that, that we need to start asking ourselves, right? Our business model is mainly DTC, but we are... Direct-to-consumer. Direct-to-consumer, yeah. yeah. Through the tasting room, through the wine club and online. Yeah. Special events. There's very few wineries that are distributing outside of the States unless you're 25,000, 35,000 cases. You know, we self-distribute a little bit, but it's all within the state of Virginia, right? Because right now we're storytelling. We want to do that face-to-face. -face. We're not at a point where people are going to buy our wine just for Virginia. I think that's changing, and I think the wine enthusiast, you know, is saying, hey, you know, the Monticello area is the wine region of the year 2023 it now gives us an opportunity to explore other business avenues but then you have how do we make the wine this year we had grapes that 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 were stayed on the vine because we we couldn't find a home for it so as small as we are we have our challenges as well but yeah we're, we're not going to compete with the big guys out on the west coast that's that's for sure okay so that's a perfect segue into the next question um with this world recognition do we see european brands or california brands heading to Virginia, either as additional competition or trying to gain market share from you guys? I think so. I think that's inevitable. I mean, and take, take other parts of the world. You know, um, what's it? Schramsberg was the first sparkling wine in California, I believe, in 1965. And they were very famous when, what was it, Richard Nixon went and it was the hand of peace where he took the Schramsberg Blanc de Blanc. And I'm going off memory. Uh, um, and then all of a sudden, what happened is Moesha and Don, I believe it was, knocked on the door and said, I want to buy your winery. You know, here's a champagne house going in. You're looking at champagne houses going into England to buy up land. Relatively speaking, land and the establishment of vineyards and wineries in Virginia is going to be a lot cheaper than buying Calistoga, Oakville, you know, prime land in Napa Valley and Sonoma County. So if you've got someone who, who wants to diversify a portfolio, who wants to get onto the East Coast and just wants to add value and quality to their product, I, I think this, there's an inevitability about someone big with money to spend who has the ability to, to kind of finance a huge operation. I think that's going to happen in the next couple of years. Uh, Christopher Conklin, I'm going to get to your comments here in a matter of moments. Before I do, I have a personal follow-up for, for Stephen. Maybe your crystal ball, which uh, brands do you see potentially penetrating the market and emerging as competition, either from California or from Europe or from elsewhere? That's interesting, you know, because brands own multiple companies, right? So if you think of something like uh, Diageo or Constellation, somewhere like that, that has portfolios and brands um, throughout the world, or someone like LMVH, uh, Louis Vuitton, you know, they have brands throughout the world. Perhaps someone like that might come in and do it. You know, you've got the big family like Jackson Family, you know, who own, or Gallo. Um, but then there also might be someone who, who's saying, look, I don't want to be big. I just want to make incredible wine. And Virginia affords me the opportunity to make a cult winery in, in Virginia, you know, and perhaps it might not be a, a big brand like that. Um, so I don't know, but someone has to have um, 
the money to do it, you know, has to be able to buy the land and, and invest and then, you know, really, really kind of shake up the, the route to market, you know, the economies of scale because to, to make a bottle of wine in Virginia is so much more expensive than elsewhere in the world because of all the environmental issues that we deal with. Uh, Bill McChesney, I'll get to your question in a matter of moments. First, Christopher Conklin watching the program, and he says, Stephen, what are some of the major issues Virginia wineries struggle with when trying to get new visitors? That is, that is, a, that is a great, great, great question. Um, you know, I, I think visitation is all based on experiences, right? And I think we all have to just admit to the fact that, you know, it's not just wine alone that brings people there. It's food, it's music, it's geography, it's location, it's what's going on. If you think of some of the biggest events that draw people, think of King Family Vineyards and Polo. Think of Starry Nights at Veritas. You think when Dave Matthews is playing at the JPJ, guess, guess who's busy? You know, Blenheim Vineyards because they just want to see him. Um, and so- Miller's on the downtown mall. <laughs> I was out there. There was a line wrapped around the door. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. So, yeah, that, that's some of the challenges. And the other thing is just the saturation effect, right? Um, you know, competing with, with – in the Monticello Wine Trail, we're just talking about that. Forty incredible wineries. But what about, you know, the Eastern Shore and Northern Virginia? Um, and, and those are the challenges, you know, the, the economy of it, how expensive is your wine, you know, do you have indoor seating, what else is going on, you know, can you bring the kids, can I bring my, my animals, all of those are, are things that we need to, to think about, because people plan their trip, they want to take their kids, they want to take their dog, they want to spend a day, they want to make sure they, they get food, and, and they obviously want to enjoy wine in a, in a comfortable setting with beautiful views. And, and if you have that, you have the recipe for, for success, I think. Uh, Gerald Boyne Jr. giving you props. Michael Nuck giving you some props. I hope I'm getting that right, Michael. Rodney Adams giving you some props. This question comes from North Carolina. Okay. We love visiting Charlottesville for the main reason of the vineyards and wineries. We often visit three or four when staying for a long weekend. Please ask your guests this question. We've seen some in North Carolina build brands and businesses for the sake of exiting to bigger brands and businesses, meaning selling. Um, are we seeing that at all with Virginia wine, or is this truly a labor of love? You know, I, I think it'd be facetious of me to say that there aren't wineries on the market. And I think if there's a, a price, especially, let's put it this way. I mean, how everything's many, for sale. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And how many wineries have a succession plan? You know, how many wineries have a next generation that are in the industry, want to be in the industry? How many people have kids who have no interest in going into the, to the wine business whatsoever? So what is their plan? So obviously those, those wines are on the, on the market. Um, you know, there has to be a, a get-out card, right? But I would say the, the majority of folks, if not all, the, the folks that are doing it are doing it purely out of passion and a love um, for making wine, a love for agritourism, a love for people, and, and just want to be involved in an industry that is, is really, really booming. Um, that's not to say those folks are going to get out, and, and that's just going to happen anyway. You know, people get into their 70s or 80s, you know, they want to make sure they, you know, someone younger who, who maybe has better ideas or who could change the business, they get out, they've done it, and, and that's it. We're just stewards of what we're doing right now. There's going to be a younger generation that's going to come up that's more connected social media-wise, is more market-savvy, is, 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 is in line with the demographics that's going to reach the next 30, 40 years of wine drinkers. If you think of we need to appeal to the 21 to 35-year-olds, because that's going to be the 40-year kind of future of wine drinkers. We don't necessarily need to be appealing to the 70 and the 80-year-olds because, you know, they're, you know, they're stuck 
Um, they know what they like, you know, if, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, totally kind of thing, right? I know what you're saying, yeah. Um, so we, we need to be very cognizant of the history and the past and what we've done well, but we also need to evolve and we also need to adapt and we also need to bring people in, especially when you have a beer industry that's thriving. It's a lot cheaper than wine. If you have a, uh, the cocktails and the spirits, you know, a lot cheaper than wine. How do we, how do we get youngsters to, to be passionate about wine? Is it food? Is it music? Is it education? Um, a lot of it is also financial, you know, so... I would say very passionate industry, but you know, at the right price, there's a number of wineries that might look to, to move on. The Virginia Wineries Association sharing the show. Thank you for doing that. Stephen uh, Buckman, thank you for watching the program. The show's going viral right now. We're going to get to as many comments and questions as possible. I have one for you. This is a challenging question. Okay. Um, the, the category of alcoholic beverages is extremely competitive. Yes. We've seen... Um, Liquor really gained market share. We've seen seltzers gain market mm -hmm. share. We've seen cideries booming. Uh, we know craft beer has a huge piece, um, although that market share, the, the data suggests, is, 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 is eroding a little bit, the market share of craft beer. Uh, this is the question I have for you. I'm also reading um, national data, certainly for this country, that there are folks that are less prioritizing drinking Mm -hmm. Then say our generation. I know when I was coming up, perhaps when you were coming up, yeah. that's what we did. Sure. You know, that's what we did. Now it might be a Gen Zer yep. or a young millennial that's perhaps more calorie focused, 100%. health focused, sober curious. Sober curious, mm -hmm. exactly. That's a great way. Yep. Um, the popular nature of dry January yep. is at its peak. Yep. So the question I have for you is considering all these factors, the competition in the category of alcohol with the various forms of alcohol, also with the next younger generation of consumers maybe being more sober curious, would you say you're bullish on the industry, or would you say you're cautious on the industry? Oh, I'm bullish, okay. always. You know, I'm always a half-glass, full kind of guy. Um, but I think, you know, being aware of, of what our, our demographic, that demographic wants, yeah, I mean, if you look at, look at things that are, are doing well, like you say, the seltzers, um, but sparkling wine has, has gone up in market share, rosé wine has gone up in market share, things with high alcohol, like ports, they goes down, because there is sort of a health-conscious movement, there is calorie counting, um, but what do the wine industry do? Now they're starting to make low-alcohol wines, right? You're making Verde wines with 6% alcohol, so the wine industry has the ability to, to shape somewhat. The, I think the pitfall is, um, and this is where the authenticity comes into it, Jerry, is that you cannot be everything to everybody. I, and I think what people want most is storytelling. What is it about you within this greatest segment that makes you unique? What's the story behind the story of wine? Because everyone, you know, we do a lot of the same things, right? Food and wine pairing, you know, Mother's Day stuff, strawberries for... for what people really want to know, how did you get into it? What's your background? What do you do with this property? What's the history of the property? So we have a way to, to pivot and make sure we can meet the demands of the younger generation. We can meet the health demands. Um, and there's, there are things that we can do. Now, a lot of that is, is, is prohibited by cost. If you think of the, the cost and the technology used to make low alcohol wines, like spinning cone technology, 
Not a lot of wineries have that. So again, there's the limiting factor there. But I am very, very bullish on that because again, you know, this is just one chain. This is this is a market that's very much set on trends. And if we're always going to follow trends, we're never going to be able to communicate to you effectively what we are about. And I think the first thing to do is to really define what's your story, how do you fit in the segment, how are you individualistic, even though we're still Virginia, and then communicate that. And then listen. Um, but we do have the ability to to kind of change it up a little bit, and and so we should to attract new drinkers and consumers to our industry. I think what and and what a lot of what you're talking about is building a brand. Yep. Um, it's as much about the juice in the glass as it is about the story behind the brand. Um, and today's consumer, because of the ubiquitous nature of smartphones and cell phones, mm-hmm. and the fact that we're addicted to social media almost mm-hmm. like it's a drug. It is a drug. I'll cut to the chase. We make our living utilizing social media at this company. Um, the winners or those that gain market share are the ones that are going to be able to tell the story of the brand as you highlighted. I think to your credit, you have realized this very early on and in a lot of cases, well ahead of your peers. Um, you do a phenomenal job on Facebook Live. Uh, thank you. No, I sincerely mean this. Like, I, As someone who does this 20 hours a week, you are gifted with sure. the lives. You take Q&As, you offer perspective, you can do monologues, you can offer analysis. I just, it's, it's impressive here. Do you think the, do you think your counterparts realize the importance, I know they realize the importance of oh, it. Yeah. Is it perhaps personnel? Because not everyone's doing it. Um, and is that what you think will be the next wave of making the region grow even more globally? I, th- I think, you know, you're right. Social media is a, is a platform that you can't ignore because it's got far-reaching. It's at the tip of your fingertips. Especially for the DTC component, the 100%. direct-to-consumer that you're talking about. 100%. Because you can go live, crack a bottle, talk about what you're drinking, yeah. break it down, and then people watching you then can hop on your website where you can drop a link in the feed yeah. and then they can order. I mean, this is gravy here. Gary Vee does a hell of a job oh, with this, uh, right? I love him. Gary Vaynerchuk? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I watched his Thunder show for many, many years. Right. And, and he built the wine library and, and his brand based on that. I, I think this is where COVID, if you take anything that good that came out of COVID, it really made us assess the way we were doing business, right? Uh-huh. We were really dependent on walk-in traffic. That's how you sign them up to the wine club. That's how you get them back. That's how you sell wine. And then it was like, hang on, we actually have to work harder to reach the consumer. And again, you know, um, my job as, as a winemaker is, is to promote Virginia, right? And if I'm drinking someone else's wine, it, it's really not an issue to get up and say, this is a wine you really should get. This is fantastic. It's made by this person, and this is why I think it's worth it. You know, and, and it's that. And, and I find a lot of our winemakers and our, our colleagues actually do that as well. I think a lot of it, though, is, is time and, and also the scary nature of it. I don't know social media well. Um, I just drink three glasses of wine and then get online and then everything just sort of spews out. But do I do it well? No. Um, and, and I think there's a, a trick to that as well. But I think the only thing you can be is, is hey, this is me. Authentic. Authentic. Yeah. Transparent. Yeah. You know, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to learn. We're going to engage. Because at the end of the day, we're not a wine industry. We're a consumer tourism-based industry. We are predicated on people and consumers. We're predicated on, on the growth of the industry is, hey, we need people to share the message. We need people to get excited. We need to get local people drinking local wine. 
And if you're in Giant and I see you grabbing a bottle of California wine, I'm going to call you out and say, why aren't you picking up a Virginia wine? Because that's local. That's going You do that. You've done that. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Now, do I drink international wines? 100%. Absolutely. Um, but in October Wine Month, I'm drinking Virginia and I'm supporting Virginia. And I know a lot of people do. And I think that's it. If we can get people excited about the local product and they can tell other people. And then all of a sudden, that social media wave gathers. And we're reaching people what, in Pennsylvania and North Carolina and California. States. In Three 14 countries. states. Yeah. Hey, folks. Yeah, California has done it incredibly well. Oregon, Washington, you know, New York. But Virginia. Virginia is, I think, the... The next region and the wine enthusiast, by the way, just think so too, you know, um, and, and that's what's exciting. But all it does is it gives you the opportunity. We now have to take that and we have to run with it. We have to market it. We have to promote it. We have to work harder and we have to make better wines. That's the only way that this award is going to resonate in three, five, seven years' time. Otherwise, we were just a region that got awards somewhere back in the day, and next year they're going to give it to someone else. So it's a, it's a small but an incredible opportunity that we have. The Virginia Wineries Association just shared the show on their page. This is a nonprofit trade association, as he knows, that mm-hmm. acts on the behalf of the Virginia wine industry. They say you're championing and highlighting the amazing industry and are giving you some props right now. A handful of media outlets... Legacy media outlets watching Stephen Bernard right now on the I Love Siebel show. We'll take some more questions. I do want to highlight that Annette Bernard Barnard is watching the program. Oh, that's my mom. That's your mom. I figured that was your mom. <laughs> my number one fan, I she, think. From, she she uh, from put Cape in the Town. feed. Make sure you know. Uh, okay. Where is she watching right now? Uh, she is in Cape Town, South Africa. Okay. South uh, Africa in the house. Annette, I promise you I would mention this live on air, and I'm a man of my word. I see. She says is watching right now, so I want to highlight that. Uh, So I want to throw this to you here. First, let me get a couple more questions. Lisa Custolo on Cherry Avenue in Charlottesville says this, about what percentage visiting local wineries are local and how many tourists are traveling? That's a great question. You may not have that answer there. I I don't have that data, to be honest with you, so I'm not sure. I know um, at some wineries we... I used to work for Keswick Vineyards, and we would get twenty to thirty thousand visitors a year. Wow! Um, you know, and and then you know, you you can't discount the the online presence, the people who visit, who buy the online store. But that is not a, a data point that I know, so I I don't I can't even take a guess. I apologize. You mentioned authenticity, and yeah. I sincerely mean this. You have authenticity in spades. <laughs> I mean, in spades. Like what you're wearing today is what you wear all the time. Uh, Pretty much, yeah. yeah. This, this, my, my wife might think I'm actually dressed up. Yeah, so, yeah. You have this in spades. I want to talk about the evolution of the industry okay. from perhaps hoity-toity to approachable yeah. and, and everyday person. Sure. Uh, talk to us about that because I, I, I see the industry embracing what is, if you look at the, the triangle of consumers, mm-hmm. We're that top 1%, that top 5%, maybe of years past, were the champions of wine. Yeah. Now it seems like the industry, especially locally, has gone after more of that base, the middle part of the triangle, which is a much larger customer base. Yeah. Anywhere you want to go on this topic. Sure. A couple of things. Um, let's, let's just think of disposable income. Okay. Who has it? What do you do with it? You think of inflation and, and just the cost of living. When you have disposable income and you want to drink, you're going to drink on a budget. So you have to be sort of conscious that whatever price point you put your wine at, it over delivers in quality. Meaning that I don't mind spending $20 on a wine that I think is a $40 value, but I hate spending $20 on a wine that I can get for 10 at another brand. So there's firstly in that. 
Um, I think the other thing is, yeah, we, we realize that the, the future is a, a younger demographic. I'm 47 years old. You know, You're I'm, aging well. I thank you so much. Yeah, I, I sincerely that. mean that. Yeah, um, but yeah, you know, phones with um, you know people taking phones, Instagram and Snap, you know, all of those. So you you have to have a place that's beautiful aesthetically. You know, here I am taking photo. If you think of a place like Marymore with their tasting room or Blenheim with the the green truck, um, you know, Keswick has got incredible views. You know, you want people to to post and 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 kind of share, and it's that community of of sharing and you know <coughs> attracting. I think the the folks that are going to land you in good stead for the future. That is that is key and that is the evolution right is is education and in doing it in a way that is not you know demeaning or condescending because think about wine it's just fermentable grape juice for god's sakes right you know we go into all it's but that hasn't always been the case it's it come a long right? way yeah, yeah you know yeah um you know wine is seen as you put it away and you have a dusty cellar of thousands why not why not just drink wine and have fun because What's the best bottle of wine you've ever had? It's sharing it with someone. It's celebrating someone, right? You know, get up on a Monday and say, I'm on the right side of the earth. I'm going to drink my best bottle of wine today because tomorrow is not a given. I love that. Right? So if you think of it that way, you know, it, what is it really? We put a lot of effort into it. Allow us to do so. We're passionate about it. We're going to use fancy words. But when we come down to it, we're going to say, hey, would you have another glass? Would you buy it? Would you have a bottle? Would you take it home and share it with your friends? And if you do, what more is there to know? Because if that's what it is, it brings people together, you know, Democrat, Republican, you know, Ohio State, Michigan, doesn't matter, right? <laughs> That's a throw in there. I my know my beloved did. Buckeyes lost for a third time in a row. But, I mean, you can, you can sit over a table and you can drink a glass of wine and you can converse and you can talk. Um, and I often tell the story, the best bottle of wine I ever had was a 20 bottle of Australian Shiraz the day before my wedding, sitting in the house my wife and I just bought in camping chairs eating pizza. The best bottle of wine. Was it the best wine? No. But because of who I was with, when I was with, and what was going on, to this day is the best bottle of wine I've ever had. Oh, I love that right there. Chris Colt says he's watching in Cape Town, South Africa. Yeah, says, went to school with Chris. Yeah. He says, Stephen is doing a fantastic job over there, and Virginia produces incredible wines. Christopher Conklin, on your Facebook page, answers Lisa Custolo's question on a different Facebook page. And Christopher says, annually... 1.4 million tourists for Virginia wine. Wow. Uh, your mom says thank you very much, Jerry, for, for mentioning this. Stacy Donnellan, yeah, North um, Carolina. watching the program in North Carolina. She says, what a wonderful ambassador and cheerleader Stephen Bernard is for Virginia wine, his fellow Virginia wineries and winemakers, and for Virginia agro-tourism. Do other winemakers do all the education and... Uh, you might have to help me with this. Macy's Gimbal's cross-advertising and recommendations that Stephen does. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think so. There's, there's so many avenues and platforms. Um, you know, education can be simply meeting a winemaker in a tasting room and learning one thing that you never knew. Uh, it could be the tours. And there's a lot of wineries that, that do that and do that incredibly well. So without a doubt, I, I have a lot of colleagues who, who value and understand, you know, the, the benefits of educating and building a relationship. You know, we haven't used that word, but a relationship. If you build a relationship based on transparency and authenticity with good quality wine, you know, that's going to serve you in good stead as a business model for down the line. So, yeah, it, it, is, not, it, is, it is not unseen for winemakers to be in tasting rooms and to do tours and to do barrel tastings and to, to educate well and beyond the, the normal scope of just making wine or growing grapes. So, 100%. This is a fantastic question right now, and this is from Matthew, who is watching in Alabama. Does he anticipate uh, the wine industry heading to 
strictly direct to consumer. For example, could mm. a wine brand create a partnership with an established winemaker, have that winemaker make wine for the brand, and then the brand utilize social media and the internet, no tasting room, nor no distribution at all, to go DTC anywhere they want to go? Yep, that's quite that's possible. That's happening now. That's, that's quite a, yeah. possible. That, yeah. that, that is a model that's been widely and successfully used. Break that model down for us, what he's talking about. Well, I mean, so you would say um, you, you don't necessarily own vineyards, right? So, uh, you or grapes. Have, or grapes. Right? You don't have so grapes. The yeah. cost of the land, if you think of, you think of establishment costs, you're looking at around, what, $20,000, $25,000 an acre, give or take, the land price out of the... Then you've got three years of, of working before you get grapes, more years than that before you get full production, and you, you, you carry the risk of, especially in Virginia, you look at 2018 and 11 with copious amounts of rain and mildew and fungus and spraying, you look at the, the frost Mother's Day freeze, which was, what, May 13th and 14th in 2020, I, Keswick lost 90% of their fruit. You know, all of that cost of pruning and, and no, no kind of product to, to support. So you can do it a couple of ways. You can diversify and, and carry contracts with growers. Diversify meaning like in Virginia, you could have grapes in northern Virginia, eastern shore, maybe in central. So you minimize the risk. If central gets hit, northern Virginia might not and vice versa and stuff. And then you pay a contract fee to, to make the wine and you leverage um, your, your kind of your resources, maybe they're more distribution or internet or social media, and you don't have a brick and mortar, but you have to build up a following where people are going to buy the wine sight and scene, right? The hardest part is it's hard to buy wine without tasting wine. There it is. You know, that's and the that's value that's of the, the tasting problem. room. And that's the problem. And yeah. it's the other thing is, you know, the communication aspect. I think you lose a little bit of that, that transparency, you know, um, if, if, our wine is being poured in a five-star restaurant. You've got a sommelier comes in, dressed to the nines. How is he going to talk? You know, he's going he's to present the wine in a very different way than you would. You can say, hey, these are the hands that, that made these grapes, right? Here's a photograph of this. There's that sort of tie-in, you know, to, to the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into making wine. But is it possible? Without a doubt. But, yeah, we still have to have people taste it, and once they taste it and buy it. Um, there are wines, I think, that, that would sell without that. I mean, you think of, you know, Barbersville and what Luca and Daniele are doing. I think some of their wines could sell without tasting. I think King Family, RDV, you know, what uh, Linden Vineyards, Glen Manor, I think those are wines that have done it so well over the last couple of years, despite vintage variation, that people can buy confidently without tasting them. For others, I think, us included, we have to pour because the wines are going to be different year in, year out, which is both a positive in terms of character but it's also hard to kind of buy into a consumer. And that's where, you know, the California wines, you know, um, whatever it may be, when they're on the shelf, they, they're always, they take Kendall Jackson. You know, it is a very well-made and crafted wine. It's very similar year to year. So that vintage variation is non-existent. So if you like what you bought two years ago and you buy it today, you're more than likely going to get the same thing. And then sure. you can buy with confidence, and that's great. Um, great, great uh, topic or question from uh, the folks in Alabama. We'll highlight a few more uh, viewers and listeners and ask a couple more questions. Uh, Chris Zitzman giving you some props right now. Fifteen states watching Stephen Bernard right now. Yeah, those folks I mean, in Alabama must have had I love a rough Steve's time with that Auburn game. My Lord. Oh, man. He's got a My Lord, you watch that game? I did. Mm. Well, I watched that game. That was crazy. Um, I'm a huge college football fan. Um, I'll throw this to you here. What is um, expectations? Maybe ex- No, expectations is not the right word. What is the ask from 
the Monticello Wine Trail and the Central Virginia region of the Commonwealth of Virginia from potentially a funding standpoint to further drive momentum? Can yep. we get more tourism dollars? Can we get more brand exposure? The Virginia is for lovers brand, for instance, is getting to be nationwide brand, if not, you know, well known outside the country as well. Sure, sure. What can we ask from the Commonwealth to keep the momentum going for wine here? Yeah, and, and that's great. And I think the other the other side of it, Jerry, is we, we also have to acknowledge that an award like this doesn't just happen, you know, and really want to to give props to to Brantley and Courtney at the CACVB oh, for yeah. all their work. You know, you got the VTC. Um, you got the Virginia Marketing and Net Boyd and what they do, um, and and we have quite a powerful, you know, kind of support system behind us with the research exchange. And then you think of the government, um, and it's every year, no matter if it's blue or red, they are pro agriculture and and pro tourism. Um, so Governor Youngkin right now, and I sit on the Virginia Wine Board, very very sort of you know kind of pro spending dollars, you know, for marketing research and then how to elevate this industry. It, it does probably require more, you know, in terms of how do, we, how do we minimize the risk? If a grower has 50 acres, loses all of it, you know, how do we make crop insurance maybe a little bit more affordable so, so their livelihood... Is crop insurance level, astronomically expensive? It is astronomical yeah, right. expensive. And, and I don't know if anyone actually has it because of the... Of I mean, the, is that like a Lloyd's of London type of insurance? Yeah. So I'm serious. I sincerely mean that. It because is. who can predict yeah. weather patterns? You can't, you know, yeah. and then, you know, maybe that climate change will, will do us good. But, I mean, if you went through an 18 hmm. vintage, which was rainy, and, you know, and the market share for grapes was low, and then you had 19, which was a bumper, and then you lost all your fruit in 20, how do you, how do you make, make wine or how do you make a living being a grape grower? That is incredibly tough. So how do we support those folks who have a 5 or 10 or a 15-acre vineyard who are, you know, who are kind of depending on that crop coming in at a quality that will demand the prices that they should be paid for it as well. But do we have the CACDB, the VTC, the marketing office, and a, a government that is, that is supporting us and wants to and wants to throw more dollars at us? We're, we're incredibly lucky to, to have that support system behind us without a doubt. This question from the mayor of McIntyre, is there a viticulture program at PVCC and how do we get youth into this industry? Yes, 100%. Um, there is. There's a certificate program through the uh, Piedmont Virginia Community College. Um, it is a, a great program taught by winemakers, and it's a great way for folks to enter in um, you know, and be able to, to work in a, in a cellar, know their way around an equipment. Mathieu Fineau, Jake Bushing, Chris Hill, incredible winemakers and, and consultants who, who actually teach those courses. Um, 100%. Then, you know, obviously, if you go to Virginia Tech, they have a, a food science program there as well. But PVCC offers it. And yet, that is it. How do we get people inspired to enter into this field? You know, everyone wants to be a winemaker, right? You know, I, I think you, you want to be cautious of what the job actually entails. You should tell them what it entails. You know, you, you spend, You've talked about this. You spent more time being wet and cold and cleaning than actually making wine, which is great. How do we get people in the, in the field? You know, not only that, how do we get people starting their own businesses? How do we get people marketing wine? You know, it's, a, it's an incredible field in which to get into. But, you know, if you own your own brand, it's, it's also incredibly risky. You know, and it maybe be cost prohibitive. You think of places in South Africa that are pulling out vines and planting apples because, you know, honestly, there's, there's more money to be made in, in poem and apples than there are in vineyards, right? How do we minimize that risk? So perhaps the question would be how do we create a fund for people who need it in years where they've 
potentially lost their livelihood because we are you know, in a fortunate position where we get a lot of backing from various entities who honestly should take a lot of credit for this award that we're all going to benefit from. Well said. A few more questions here. Um, and, and you mentioned everybody wants to be a winemaker. I hear this a lot. <laughs> everybody wants to be a social media influencer. And I say... You realize I just want to be spending. retired. Well, yeah, That'd that's be what great. I want to be. <laughs> be able to watch college football. Oh, yeah. Have, have a nice glass of wine, steak go. and a cigar, spend time with my family. Love it. That's That'd what I want to do. That's my, that's my special place right there. But everybody wants to do social media influencing, and Judah and I tell them often we're spending two to three hours what we do on camera, off camera, editing and producing. It is yeah. not what you see uh, on Instagram, ladies and gentlemen. A uh, couple more questions. This one from Christopher, which is a good one. Um, he says, Jerry, can you ask Stephen about the lack of e-commerce options to purchase wine trail passes and why Virginia wineries are not monetizing the wine trails more? Meaning, you know, why collectively we're not putting a, a trail together kind of thing. So You see that in Asheville with the brewery scene, Yeah, for you do it. And, and there has been, you know, the, the Governor's Cup did a, a gold medal trail, which I thought was incredible. Uh, I know Keswick and other wineries were, were part of a passport program, but that wasn't so much centered on 231 or 151. So those trails do exist. Um, but those are, those are great ideas. And this is where we need to, to kind of hear from the consumer and say, what are you wanting from us? And perhaps that's an idea that we can kind of, kind of take further and make better. <laughs> those trails do exist. I think the marketing office does a, does a great job with the gold medal trail kind of running on the back of the Governor's Cup competition, which is going to come out pretty soon. So we'll close with this. Show is yours. Um, anywhere you want to go. Yeah. Uh, anyone you want to champion. Um, any ask that you want to make okay. of the, uh, the countries and states watching the show. Um, I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. You and, are and a, yours. You're an interviewer's dream. We're an hour in. Time We're an hour fl- in. I know. Oh, my gosh. Tom, time flies when you're having fun. So, my friend, the program is yours. Thank you. Um, I think, firstly, I, I, have to, I have to give massive congratulations to, to the, um, the owners and the winemakers and the marketers and the people in the industry. Uh, incredible people that I work alongside with. And then, obviously, you know, um, Christina Sandridge, I think, was on there from Easter with the Virginia, um, the VWA. You got the VVA, you got the marketing office, you got the CACVB, the VT, and you got the, um, you know, the government support that we have. We are so blessed to be able to do what we do, what we're passionate about, and then to, I hope that people really look at this award as it's, it's award, you know, kind of, earned by many and hopefully this is good for many this is going to benefit wineries and restaurants and hotels it's going to put heads in beds um it's going to you know kind of get people out into into the nature and into monticello and and montpelier and all of that stuff and then you know just a, a commitment thing that i know there's a lot of things that are being done that are going to influence this industry positively. And then I think the only thing that we can always do is, is, you know, please use your power as a social media person to, if you have a great experience, post about it. If you've got a bottle of wine that you like, post about it. You know, talk about it, share it, and be it. The only other thing that I can say is, you know, how about we just be kind and grateful and gracious to each other, for each other, and about each other, because we live in, in arguably one of the greatest cities in the world, in a country that's amazing, with freedoms that not a lot of people have, so we've got nothing to complain about. And then you throw in the great wine, beer, ciders, and distilled products. Man, it's a, it's a place in heaven. So oh, I appreciate that all. That was perfect. Gosh. Well, Judah, we're going to have him back on the show. What are you saying? Absolutely down for that. Um, he's the man. Uh, for those that are asking, the show is archived on ilovesevil.com. 
wherever you get your podcasts. Frankly, wherever you get your social media, this show is airing on. Um, I'm grateful for you. Um, you. I see your colleagues, your contemporaries uh, watching the program, and they're giving you some props. One of the A-plus guys in the business and a champion for Virginia Wine, Stephen, was fantastic today. Tomorrow's program starts at 1230. We air Monday through Friday, 1230 to 1:30 here on the I Love Seville Network, where the entire concept of the I Love Seville show is to champion positively Charlottesville, Almoral County, and Central Virginia for anyone that wants to hear all the glory and all the fantastic news that's coming from our home and our community. For Judah, for Stephen, my name is Jerry Miller, and this is the I Love Seville show on a Wednesday. So long, everybody.